Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, should be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. The next reading is on page 1218. Page 1218, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. 
Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honour the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We've been singing our Lord and God in that song that uh, the way we live will demonstrate uh, who we are. We pray that would be true in our love for one another and in the way we live uh, when we're in the world. Uh, So please do uh, challenge us and encourage us to do just that for your name's sake. Amen. Please do sit. Well, let me encourage you to do two things. Uh, One would be to turn back in your Bible to the second of those two readings that uh, Alison read for us. Page 1218 is the page number. The other thing I think you'll find particularly helpful will be to um, uh, uh, grab hold of the sermon outline um, that was put in with uh, all the other bits and pieces uh, that you had as we continue looking through uh, 1 Peter uh, this week. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. Uh, We're not as free to live and speak the gospel in this nation as we used to be. In 2013, a Christian street preacher was arrested in Carlisle. In the past, I've done street preaching in Romford, in Southgate, in Letchworth, in Ware, in Frinton. It's an expression of free speech. But now it seems that some Christians are not so free to speak. In the same year, 2013, a young Christian graphic designer was refused a job at a hotel Reason, uh, just because atheist staff, they're already on the staff at the hotel, may not have liked working with a Christian. Uh, You will know at school, at university, in the workplace, with your friends, uh, when you live Christianly, you are sometimes rejected for it. It is hard to live as a Christian in a society that is increasingly turning away from Christ. And yet in another sense, it is much easier In my parents' generation, British society followed a social standard that was largely shaped by Christian values. People were generally polite and well-mannered. Sexual ethics were largely Christian. I'm not naive. I don't for one minute think that everyone lived it out. But back then, it was frowned upon for anyone to be living together before marriage. And marriage was understood back then to be exclusively to be between one man and one woman and for life. In the business world, in the square mile, in the city of London, in the financial institutions, they did business on the old adage, my word is my bond. 
Significant business deals were agreed in word and secured on a handshake because you trusted people to keep their word. All that flowed out of a Christian worldview that had shaped this nation educationally, ethically, uh, legally. And the point is this, in that environment, when the nation accepted and in one sense lived by Christian standards, back then, while you didn't suffer for being a Christian, for being a Christian or living a Christian life, you had to live an exceptional life as a Christian to stand out for the, from the crowd. Now, with society having moved so far from Christian values, we don't have to live such a good life to be distinctively Christian anymore. So yes, on the one hand, living as a Christian is harder today because as we do, we will be marginalised and ostracised by society. But on the other hand, be encouraged. You don't have to be a particularly outstanding Christian to to live a, a particularly outstanding Christian life to live a life that is distinctly Christian. And that is what we are to do uh, in the society and in a society that rejects us. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Peter says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul and to live such good lives among the pagans, among unbelieving people, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You might remember last week and the week before in verse 9, we saw that we should declare the praises of God, the one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, we should speak about him with our words, with lips, with our lips, with our words. Now, in verses 11 and 12, Peter adds that we should live a life that is distinctly Christian, a life that reinforces the message Notice the assumption, though, in verse 12. If we live good lives, on the one hand, the world won't like it. On the other, they'll be attracted by it. Verse 12, live a good life, and they'll accuse you of doing wrong. I was converted to Christ when I was 20. At the time, as many of you know, I was working in the newspaper industry. And when I became a Christian, some things in my life changed instantly. Overnight, I stopped swearing. But in other things, the Lord challenged me as the months went on. So a few months after I became a Christian, I was convicted about my expenses. I I drove a company car. The company met all my business fuel costs. And to my shame, I was in the habit of inflating my mileage. Just putting a few, quite a few extra miles on the expenses form. Now, having become a Christian, the Lord was convicting me that what I was doing was dishonest. And so at the end of the month, I submitted my expenses claim with the correct mileage, considerably lower than every other month before it. My line manager called me into his office. He asked me to close the door and sit down. I knew that was a dangerous sign. Your expenses, he said. The mileage is very low this month. I said, I've got to admit it. For some time now, I've been claiming for more miles than I should. Oh, yes, I know that, he said. We all do that. The problem is, if you reduce your mileage claim, it makes the rest of the departments look far too high. You can't do that. That's not right. That's verse 12, isn't it? Living a good life, a life in line with God's ways. I was accused of doing wrong. So on the one hand, live a good life and the world won't like it. They'll accuse you of doing wrong. And yet at the same time, verse 12, they may see your good deeds and be so attracted by them that they may want to know more about Jesus and possibly even become Christians and so glorify God on the day he visits us. Why would someone 
not get extra money monthly from their expensive claim if everyone else was doing it and the boss said it was okay. There's something intriguing, sometimes even appealing about living a distinctive Christian life. That's verses 11 and 12. Now, in the verses that follow, Peter tells us what a distinctively Christian life will look like. And it might be a bit of a surprise to us where he starts. In chapter 2, verse 13, through to chapter 3, verse 7, the good life we are to live is a life of submission. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Look at verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive. In the middle of the section, in chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, we read of Jesus' good life, a good life of submission to his heavenly Father. Here is Jesus willingly suffering unjustly in his death on the cross, and that is held up as the perfect example that we should follow. Well, the first thing, the first thing then he says is submit to the authorities, verses 13 to 17. Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to king as the supreme authority or to governors. Now, most of us here, I would say, would describe ourselves as good, honest citizens. We pay our taxes, we keep the law, we don't have a criminal record. So we can read verse 13 and not think twice about it. But the challenge of verse 13 comes in the word every. Christians are to submit to every authority. When Peter wrote this letter, the authorities were not Christian and they were not democratically elected. Some of them may have been anti-Christian. Yet we are, submit to, we are to submit to them for the Lord's sake because, verse 14, every authority is sent by the Lord. Now that might raise some questions in our minds, but it is a mind-blowing thought, is it not? It speaks of the sovereignty of God. The authorities, no matter how they've come to be in authority, whether a dynasty or a democratically elected government or a dictator, all have been sent by the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? And here's the thing as we think about this. They have been sent by the Lord for the specific task of verse 14, punishing those who do wrong and commending those who do right. Now, right and wrong here is right and wrong according to God's law. Archbishop Thomas Cranmer expressed this brilliantly in his prayer in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer communion service. Uh, And I've put this quote on uh, on the sermon outline. Praying for the king at the time and for the government, Cranmer prays that they may truly and, well, he says indifferently, but he means, or this is what it meant at the time, that they may truly and impartially minister justice to the punishment of wickedness and and vice and to the maintenance of thy true religion and virtue. It's old language, but it's absolutely brilliant. Authorities have been sent by God to punish evil and to pass laws and govern in a way that promotes right. Cranmer knew that and he knew that that meant it was the government's job to create an environment where God's people, the church, could promote the gospel, the greatest good. Next year there'll be a general election in this nation and we'll have a chance to influence who is given authority. And this tells us what should influence our vote. 
as I cast my vote, I should ask, who is most likely to punish wrong? That is, wrong according to God's law. And who is most likely to promote and commend those who do right? I should vote for whoever is most likely to, in the words of Archbishop Cranmer, maintain true religion and virtue. Who is most likely to create an environment in this land where the Christian church can continue to proclaim the gospel? That's who I should vote for. Incidentally, here's a reason to have Christians in politics. Look, politics won't change the world. Only the gospel can do that. But we need Christians in politics who will keep the government honest, reminding the government they've been put there by God to punish wrong and commend right. Now, all that as it may be, this is here to tell us how we as Christians should submit to the authorities, whoever whoever they are. For when we do submit to the authorities as we should, then it will speak powerfully to the unbelieving world. Look at verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, that is by submitting to the authority, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Unbelievers will be looking for ways to speak maliciously against us. So in submitting to the authorities, we'll give them nothing to say. It's difficult to make a case against us if we're not doing anything wrong, isn't it? When Peter wrote this, Rome ruled the world. And Christians refused to say, Caesar is Lord. So people accused the Christians of being a dangerous, subversive, revolutionary movement. But then by obeying the authorities and by being good, obedient citizens, that ignorant and foolish talk was silenced, you see? Of course, the temptation for Christians is to disobey the ruling authorities. It would be easy to argue, I'm an alien and stranger in this world, because that's what Peter has written. This world is not my home. Do you remember chapter one? I have an eternal heavenly inheritance to look forward to. God is my king. I'm free from the constraints and rulers of this world. Be easy to say that, wouldn't it? So Peter writes, verse 16, live as free men, but do not lose your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Yes, Christian, you are free. But don't use that as an excuse to be a bad citizen. We serve God by obeying the authorities that he has put in place. But then some are bound to ask the question, what, am I to obey the authorities at any cost? On any point, am I to obey every authority all the time? Well, we've already seen from verse 14 that kings and governors have been given their place of authority by God to punish wrong and promote right. So when they're not doing that, they're outside of their remit. But put that together with verse 17 and we have all the principles we need to work out how we should respond to the authorities. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. What will that look like? Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honour the king. First, love the brotherhood, love other Christians. That, of course, is so crucial in a society that rejects Christians. See, Christian, when you suffer just because you are a Christian, this means I'm going to love you with, chapter 1, verse 22, a sincere love, a deep love from the heart. Our love for each other when we live in a world which doesn't love us must be real and practical. So when the authorities mistreat Christians and even arrest them, we will love each other. 
provide for each other, stand up for each other, speak out against injustices against Christians, even if it's going to cost us, because we love each other. Second, verse 17, fear God. And I love this where it comes here. Fear of the Lord must come before and above a fear of the authorities. Edmund Burke, the 18th century Irish statesman and British MP, wrote, the one who truly fears God fears nothing and nobody else. That's why totalitarian regimes are terrified of of committed Christians. Ultimately, we don't fear the state. Yes, verse 17, we honour the king. And we will submit to the governing authorities, but we fear God first. Here's why Christians are both the best of citizens and yet the most difficult to control. We should obey the law, be scrupulous in paying our taxes, keeping to the speed limit. Got that one? Being the best citizens we can be, obeying the law even when we think it's an ass. But the moment we are asked to do something that is against God and his laws and his people, we won't budge an inch. That's why we read the book of Daniel. Uh, It's our first reading. Read it for yourself. See how Daniel, living as an exile in a foreign land, exactly the situation of 1 Peter, under an alien king, yet he was such a brilliant citizen. So good that he was promoted to the highest place in government. He did, verse 12, live such a good life among the pagans. But while his life was good, many didn't like it and they didn't like him. And so they hatched a plan to get rid of him, to get him arrested. They passed a law that no one could pray to anyone except the earthly king. But Daniel, verse 17, feared God. So he refused to obey that law. He's a brilliant citizen until it was something that he, should do, that he wouldn't do that would affect his, his relationship with his God. So in these verses, in 1 Peter, we have all the principles we need to work out how we should live as good citizens in the world. And when we do that, when we live this way, it will be outstanding. Now let me encourage you to think hard about this in your small groups this week. I hope you won't have to go through every part of every verse, but get on to application quickly in your small group and say, what will this look like in the nitty-gritty? Submit to the authorities. Secondly, submit to masters or or employers, verses 18 to 20. The slavery of first century Asia Minor was not the slave trade that Wilberforce campaigned against in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, The closest parallel for us today is submission to employers. So, verse 18, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And there's the challenge. There's a challenge in every bit here. The challenge is submit even to those who are not good and considerate, even to those who are harsh. Living that way, again, makes you stand out in the world. Anyone can submit to a good boss. There's nothing impressive or outstanding about that. But submitting to difficult employers really will be distinctive. For verse 19, it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. Now we'll see in a moment that is exactly what Jesus did. But before we look at Jesus, look at verse 20. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? Now, please take that verse seriously. Very important that Peter dropped that in. 
Some people think they're being persecuted at work because they're Christian, when in fact they are being rebuked at work because they're a pain in the neck or bad at their job or because they have actually done something wrong. It's not that they're being persecuted, it's just they should get um, a telling off, a dressing down. It's no good arriving at your small group this week complaining that you got a dressing down at work and were told off by your boss for being insubordinate or lying or being deceitful. You should get a hard time for that kind of behaviour. So make sure when you're suffering at work it is not because you deserve it. When I first became a Christian I worked in a workplace of 400 people roughly and I was the only Christian there. So after I'd been there for a while, I prayed for another Christian to join the company so that someone else would be a witness in the workplace with me. And the Lord answered that prayer. A few months later, a Christian girl began working in a different department and we, over time, got to know each other and she was keen to tell people about Jesus. And after a few months in the job, she began to get a hard time from her department head and she told me all about it and asked me to pray for her. And I wanted to support her and encourage her. But then I started to hear the other side of the story. Her department head was cheesed off with her, not for speaking about Jesus, but for doing it all the time and not getting on with her job. And she left the company under a cloud. She thought she was being rebuked for being a Christian. In fact, she was being rebuked for being a bad employee. We must, know, we know, we must make sure we know the difference. We should be the best employees. And if we are, and then, second half of verse 20, uh, we suffer for doing good and endure it, then this is commendable before God. It is commendable because it's exactly the kind of life we were called to when we became Christians, verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Isn't that striking? We were called to live a life of unjust suffering because that is exactly the life that Jesus Christ lived. So thirdly, uh, if you're uh, still following on the handout, we look at Jesus' submission, uh, verses 21 to 25. Uh, Jesus is our example and motivation to live a life of submission and submission uh, even in unjust suffering. See, when I signed up to follow Jesus, I signed up to follow his pattern of life. That was a life of suffering now. He suffered on this life and only then did he go to glory. That's the pattern of the Christian life. Suffering now, glory later. Problem is, we want glory now and no suffering. But that's not the Christian life. Christian life, suffering now, glory later. And I've put that theme and the references on the handout for you to look at later. Now in verses 21 to 25, we see how two things, the cross of Christ is our example and the cross of Christ is our motivation. Firstly, our example. Look at the example of Jesus' unjust suffering. Verse 22, Jesus' life was blameless. He was innocent. He didn't sin. Verse 23, on the cross, when insults were thrown at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He is our example in suffering. So you see what this means. When you get a hard time at work or from the state, don't jump on social media to vent your anger. 
Don't go around threatening to take your boss to court because you've been mistreated. Take it on the chin. That is a distinctively Christian response because people don't respond that way. Jesus is the example we're to follow when we suffer unjustly. And you might be saying, that's too difficult. How can I live that way? Well, look halfway through verse 23 and the word instead. See, here's how we can live under unjust suffering. Instead, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's how we cope when it's hard. We know that God will judge all things with justice and equity one day. I can still remember when I first got this from this very verse. It was life-changing, totally liberating. Until then, I felt so aggrieved at all the injustices that came my way, especially in the workplace. And every time an injustice came my way, I felt that I had to put them right. And usually I found myself running up against a brick wall and being very frustrated. But this was liberating, knowing that God would put all wrongs right one day, liberated me from feeling that I had to fight back and get justice now. Christian, please know this about God. He will put all wrongs right one day. He will do that. And that will enable you to follow Jesus' example. That's how he was able to cope on the cross when he was unjustly uh, suffering. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Follow the example of Jesus in unjust suffering. And secondly, look to the cross as your motivation to suffer under, under unjust, unjust suffering. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. Jesus' sin-bearing death means that we can face that coming judgment day with confidence he has taken our sin we are forgiven and his death which brings us forgiveness should motivate us to change the way we live do you see it there in verse 24 he died so that we might live for righteousness and verse 25 you were like sheep going astray past tense but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls Know this about the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd. He wants the best for you and me. He cares for you and me. He cares for your soul. He's not saying this because he doesn't care for you, but because he does. So live this kind of life because it is the best for you. When you suffer for doing good, don't sin, don't retaliate, don't make threats. Take it. That will be quite exceptional in the, in, in the workplace and in the world because other people won't take it. It won't be easy, but it will make you stand out as somebody quite distinct. And people might, might say, why does he, why does she live that way? That is remarkable. I want to know what motivates them. In a moment, we'll take communion. As we do, think on this. Think on verses 21 to 25. Think of the Lord Jesus. Think of your forgiveness. Yeah, you've blown it and you've been forgiven. And you've been forgiven so that you might live a life of righteousness. And when you think of your forgiveness and you look at how much Jesus has done for you, you can say, Jesus cares for me that much. 
He cares for my soul. When he says these things, he's saying them for my good. And when you take communion, trust the shepherd and overseer of your soul to know what is best for you. And when you suffer unjustly at work, at school, at university, with friends and family, think about how he responded when he suffered. And say, I can live that way too. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, for the remarkable example of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only truly sinless one, that as he uh, did such a wonderful and uh, loving thing for us in dying on the cross was being wrongly accused and yet he didn't retaliate. We thank you that just as he entrusted himself to you, his heavenly father, the, the just judge, we pray that we'd be able to do the same. And we pray that we would be those who can Uh, live differently under unjust suffering. And in doing so, may it be that people would look on at our lives and want to know why and want to know you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.